If you would, take out your Bibles and turn with me to Mark's Gospel. We're going to pick up where we left off last week in chapter 7. As we turn to God's Word, let's turn to Him once again in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, as we just sang, as we read Your Holy Word, help us see, Lord, help us learn. Holy Spirit, from its pages, lead the way. Come and melt our stubborn will. Make our hearts and souls be still. As we read your word, may we heed it and obey. Amen. We are now at week 25 in Jesus According to the Bible, an exposition of the Gospel of Mark. You know, every week we have a corporate confession of faith where we declare together with one voice what it is we believe. But you know what? There are also uh, confessions of faith, creeds out there in our society at large that are embraced by many. And one of the most dominant creeds today And interestingly, even though I would say it's a creed, it doesn't tell us as much to believe, but really what to do. But of course, that call to duty is formed by what the belief behind it is. Now, what is that common creed that I believe is out there that's embraced by many? It's this, follow your heart. Follow your heart. If you don't believe me, just read a magazine. Read the newspaper. Watch the television. Talk to your friends and co-workers. Because folks think that their heart is a compass that can find true north. And people are following their own heart. But I hope we know there is great difficulty and danger with this creed. A creed to live by. Follow your heart because it gets you into trouble every time. Now, why would I say that? Because primarily it's contrary to Scripture. It goes against what God's Word says about the heart. The prophet Jeremiah in chapter 7 Verse 17, verse 9, writes this, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Follow your heart? Follow your deceitful, sick heart that you can't even understand? I mean, my friends, we should pause right there. And when we hear our cousin our neighbor, maybe even ourselves express that kind of thought, we should pray and ask God to give us clarity and wisdom of how to respond. Follow your heart. That's what our American society is doing today in so many ways. It's following its deceitful, desperately sick heart. Who can understand it? Well, today we're going to be looking at another passage of Scripture that speaks of the heart, and also I believe we will all see to the heart. 
Last week we looked at the first 13 verses of Mark chapter 7 in letting go and holding on the commandments of God versus the traditions or the commandments of men. And we saw Jesus confront a religion that is man-made, heartless, and hypocritical. And the confrontation began over some of Jesus' disciples. Notice, it was some of Jesus' disciples eating with hands that were defiled. Today in our text, we will see Jesus pick up and run with the subject of defilement. But before we go on, it's important to understand that defilement is a legitimate issue. It's a problem. People everywhere recognize it. They're, they're, they feel guilty, and so they're trying to work off the guilt. They, um, you see it when even this day, if you, if you go into the office of someone important, you clean up. On your wedding day, you probably don't want to show up without a shower or a bath. There's this idea of uncleanness and cleanness and defilement that rightly is out there. But I, I want to, once again, ground us in the Scriptures. And, and this idea, this, this matter of defilement is a legitimate issue. The psalmist, David, in Psalm 24 writes this, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in His holy place? It's a great question, isn't it? Who can be in the presence of God, in other words? And David comes back with an answer. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, and who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. That's who can ascend to the holy hill. That's who can be in... God's presence. And indeed, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes says this, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. But, as we saw last week, there was quite a bit of confusion as to the source of the defilement. And so Jesus today is going to bring clarity. Join with me as I read verses 7, excuse me, Uh, uh, 14 through 23 of Mark 7. And he, that is Jesus, called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, All these evil things come 
come from within, and they defile defile a person. Now our text can be broken down into two basic parts, exhortation and explanation. Let's look at verses 14 and 15. Jesus exhorts the crowd with a parable. Jesus is teaching the people and he calls them to him. Hear me and understand. There's echoes of Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Hear me, Jesus says, and understand. And Jesus is picking up on the language of the parable of the sower. The need to listen, to understand. Jesus exhorts the crowd with a parable. In verse 15, again, hear these words. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. This is a one verse, one sentence parable. It's not the parable as in story, but it's the parable here in a statement, a saying. So Jesus exhorts the crowd. He publicly proclaims. He's teaching. But now he's going to explain the parable to his disciples and the rest of our text. And notice that the disciples lack understanding. But you know what they do? They don't run from Jesus. They stick with him. They stay with him. And they are going to gradually learn. They asked him to help them understand the meaning of the parable. My friends, there is hope for the disciples. And there is hope for us. They are in so many words saying, help us understand. We don't get it. Jesus, can you explain it? Can you help us And Jesus is going to provide that explanation and that help. Well, the rest of our passage is an unfolding of verse 15. And in our text, we will see Jesus accurately diagnosing the problem of defilement, the problem of uncleanness, the problem of sin. And we will see that he says three things. The problem is not on the outside, but rather the problem is on the inside. And finally, we'll see him say that the problem that is on the inside is big. First, let's look at the problem is not on the outside. The first part of verse 15 and then explained in verses 18 and 19. The problem is not on the outside. As I was working through this, I was thinking outside, inside, location matters. For those of you involved in real estate, and I would imagine All of us, to some degree or another, are involved in real estate. What's the rule? Location, location, location. And Jesus is saying, location, location, location. The problem is not on the outside. Jesus is going to refute the Pharisees' argument. He shows people, and what he unfolds is that he takes the law and the need for holiness much more seriously than the Pharisees do. Because he goes on to say that the problem of defilement is not outside contamination that can be dealt with by self-improvement, but rather an inside condition that can only be dealt with by radical intervention. The parable is simple, isn't it? I mean, who couldn't understand that? But it turns the teaching of the Pharisees upside down or rather inside out. 
Jesus enigmatically, in other words, mysteriously, somewhat of a, um, a puzzle or a riddle says this, no, your problem is not outside in, it's inside out. Because Jesus is going to go on to give two anatomy lessons. The first lesson has to do with the physical, and Jesus zeroes in on the stomach. The meaning is so unexpected. Did you read that? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? This, this was so unexpected, the disciples couldn't even get it at first when Jesus explains it. And if you think about it, who had to learn this understanding about food? It was Peter. Peter had to understand that in Acts 10, we read. In Galatians 2, it was not something easy to understand. Because Jesus is pointing out the fact that this um, defilement, this contamination, this pollution is not ritual but rather it is moral. Now look with me in verse um, uh, 19, this parenthesis. Thus he declared all foods clean. That's Mark's editorial comment. And you think, well, what is this? Just going to be an issue of food? Here is Jesus who comes not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Here's Jesus declaring and just step back and see what is happening here is Jesus is teaching with authority, his own authority. Jesus is declaring right then and there that the ceremonial food laws have been fulfilled and are going to be abrogated by his arrival. He is declaring that all foods are clean. Jesus declared. He declares this verbally here, and one day ahead, He's going to declare it from a cross, isn't He? That with His atoning death, defilement of the heart, not defilement of the hands, defilement of the heart is thoroughly removed and a full fellowship with God becomes a reality. Through the work of Jesus, we will see later how those can indeed ascend the holy hill of the Lord and be in His presence. Now both Jesus and His detractors would agree that there is a problem, but they disagree over the location of the problem, the source of the problem. Because the problem, Jesus is saying, is not on the outside having to do with various washings, but rather the problem is on the inside. And Jesus goes into another anatomy lesson, part two, the spiritual anatomy lesson where he focuses on the heart. Now throughout scripture, the heart refers to the center of a person's being, including the mind, emotions, and will. It's the seat, as it were, of our thinking, decision-making, affections, desires. You know, interestingly, follow your heart that's not a bad definition for that heart as well. It's the center of who a person is, what they think, what they feel, their decision-making center. It's no wonder that Proverbs 4.23 we read, we are to keep or guard our heart with all vigilance. Why? For from it 
flow the springs of life. The heart is the wellspring of life. The heart is corrupt. The life is corrupt, in other words. The heart is right. The heart is cleaned. The heart is purified. The rest of life will be as well. So the problem of the defiled human heart, Jesus is saying in his explanation, is much deeper than one might assume and much more serious than mere ceremonial impurity. Jesus repeats his earlier teaching here in this explanation that he just gave in verse 15. He reverses things and takes things back to the way things were according to Scripture. You know, Martin Luther and John Calvin and John Knox and others were indeed reformers calling the church back to the gospel, to the word of God. But really the first reformer is Jesus Christ as he's wanting people's lives to be reformed according to scripture. He's going back to scripture. And this brings up that what we see in here is the sign versus the reality as we look at the physical and the spiritual. Because the ceremonial uncleanliness, uncleanness is really only a symbol of the uncleanness of the heart. Because sin begins inside in the motives and desires of the heart. Actual behavioral transgressions, actions, those sins are the fruit, but it's the attitudes of the heart, the sinful attitudes of the heart that are the root. The sign is pointing to the reality. Washing your hands for the priest was a sign of of removing defilement as they did the work of the Lord. And as those of you that are familiar with the Scriptures may remember what was involved in the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement going into the Holy of Holies, there was a series of washings, a series of changing clothes so that the people could see visually with their eyes that the high priest was representing them going into the presence of God It was not the reality. It was a symbol pointing to the reality. And just just as it would be silly to think that in fasting, physical hunger is spiritual hunger, so it's silly to think that physical ritual purity is spiritual purity. Well, what is spiritual purity? Because Jesus is driving that. What is it? He will say elsewhere when he is asked questions about the law. What is it? It's a heart of love for God and a love for our neighbor. So Jesus has located the problem. It's not on the outside. Rather, it's on the inside. And the problem that's on the inside is big. It is big. Beginning in verse 20. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come. And we see a list. Here Jesus is showing us the difference between the external and the internal. The problem of defilement is not due to external factors but rather internal influence. A number of years ago when I was in seminary, in one of my classes, it was on a Monday night, 
I believe it was Paul Tripp or David Pallas who was the instructor. And he poured a glass of water and he held it in front of him and he did this, much to our shock. He asked all of us the question, why is there water on the floor? And a number of students said, uh, there is water on the floor because your one arm hit your other arm and the water came flying out of the cup. And he looked at that student and he said, no. The reason there is water on the floor is because there was water in the cup. It was only the action of the hand that revealed what was in the cup. That's what Jesus, in a way, is saying now. Look at this list of vices. Look at this catalog of sins. And again, Jesus is emphasizing the problem is not the product of external influences. It's not the problem of the heat around you. It's the problem of the condition of your heart. Look at this catalog of sins. Evil thoughts, and we think that kind of is a caption for everything at the beginning. Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. You know, Paul is not the only one that lists these things. Jesus does this also. They are in agreement. Did you notice in listening to those vices, those sins, they are thoughts and actions. They are capital offenses which would at the time under Jewish law, it's a capital offense. Uh, adultery. What we, we see murder. We see echoes here of the Ten Commandments, a repetition. But we also see respectable sins. Sins that we tolerate in ourselves and amongst one another. Look at this. Envy. Slander, pride, pride, murder. My friends, look at this list. It is comprehensive. There is sin that would lead to death, as it were, civilly. It is sin that will lead to death spiritually, as Paul writes, of course, the wages of sin is death, envy. And look how it's capped off. Foolishness. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. The first six or seven are plural and they're mainly denoting evil actions. And the last six are singular and they don't denote uh, primarily sinful attitudes. It's a comprehensive list. Why the list? Why in this does Mark take the time to record all these? Why? Because the list is meant to reveal and bring horrifying self-knowledge to us. No one can escape this conviction. Jesus is not presenting some kind of new diagnosis of the source of evil. The Old Testament provides ample evidence through the prophets and the psalmists that evil was in the heart and could not be cured except by the gracious, sovereign action of God. What was needed is a reformation according to the Word of God. As I was working on this passage, two things hit me. First, 
Did these guys not know Psalm 51? King David, the man, the king, the, the leader, the take charge on the battlefield, was referred to as a man after God's own heart, but we know the story. David sinned, and he sinned grievously. And he paid a, a great cost for that sin. But he was forgiven because he was, his heart was broken. His heart was contrite. He turned to the Lord and received, as Nathan tells him, your sin is forgiven. Representing the Lord. Did they not read Psalm 51? Did it get lost? But as soon as I'm thinking about those guys, it was as if a mirror once again is put out in front of me. Do I... Do I forget Psalm 51? Do I not remember what it is that the Lord truly longs to see in His people? Because I could have, even early this morning, added some more to this list. That's how Paul, as he grows in grace, grows in an awareness of his sin and his awareness that only the work of Christ in his place and on his behalf could solve the problem of his sin. In other words, no man-made religion, even the evangelical variety, can do us any good. In fact, it makes things far worse because it lulls us into the belief that we are clean because of what we do. Okay, haven't murdered, haven't stolen, haven't coveted, haven't been deceitful, check, check, Envious, no, slander, not lately, pride, mm, no. My friends, we know it. God looks at the heart. That's incredibly encouraging for the clean, isn't it? For those who have been washed by the blood of Jesus. Lord, I am suffering. My spouse has left me. My, my, co, my, my co-worker has has taken money from me. For those who humbly approach the Lord, knowing that He knows the heart is greatly encouraging. But my friends, for the unclean, for those who do not acknowledge their sin, understanding that the Lord looks at the heart is and should be terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. God looks at the heart. Ask yourself, is that knowledge to me right now encouraging or terrifying? Last week we saw Jesus move from tradition to worship and this week we see Him move to sin. And in this encounter, Jesus gets to the heart of the matter. Which of course is a matter of the heart. Jesus indicates to his disciples that the problem is far bigger than they ever thought and it's a universal problem because the Gentiles were always seen as being in trouble since they were defiled by definition. But now Jesus says that Jews too are in the same boat. All people suffer from a sinful heart and need to be rescued. There is a universalism in the Scripture. 
and it's the sinful heart that's universal. So, let's wrap up. The problem has been located and identified by Jesus. But what is the solution? What is it and where is it? Well, what's the problem again? It's not physical illness as the crowd thought at the end of chapter 6. It's not ritual purity as we saw last week in the first 13 verses of Mark. But rather the problem is a defiled heart. And again, it bears repeating, the heart of the matter here is the matter of the heart. And although the solution is not directly mentioned here in the text, as is the problem, one thing is sure. We can be sure of this. Man-made religion is not the solution. It wasn't then, and it's not now. Since man-made religion gets the problem wrong, it misdiagnoses the problem. It can have nothing to do with the cure. And so if a man-made religion is not the solution, what is? Those of you that have got your thinking caps on can probably fill in the blanks. A God-made religion. A God-given religion. A God-revealed religion religion. And so where can the cure be found? In the Gospel. And what is Mark all about? All you have to do is turn back to verse 1. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And that was Jesus' message that He proclaimed. The Kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the Gospel. So let me ask you this once again. Do you or I really want to follow our hearts? Because I guarantee tomorrow we're going to be faced with that temptation as we see it all around us. Do we follow our heart? Do we really want to follow our heart? My friends, we don't even understand our own hearts. Turn with me to Psalm 139 as we conclude. Psalm 139. May this heart cry be the cry of our heart. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. My friends, as Christians, our call is not to follow our heart. Our call is to follow Jesus. And He is a much more capable Savior and a far more gracious Lord than we could ever hope to receive. Let's pray. Be Thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Naught be all else to me, save that Thou art. Thou my best thought by day or by night, waking or sleeping, Thy presence, my light.
Amen. Our response is